Well, good morning. It's so good to see you again this morning. Please take out your copy of God's Word. We are going to be in the book of Romans this morning. Turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to start at the beginning of chapter 12 for today's reading. Romans chapter 12. Give you all a moment to get there. All right. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by thy grace, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many, many members, And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and worship you this morning. Who is God but the Lord? And who is rock except our God? We give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. We will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. We worship you this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the divine Trinity. O merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. We have committed iniquity and have done wickedness. We confess we are far too often conformed to this world. We do not present our bodies as living sacrifices, but we seek our own will and our own ways. We consider ourselves more highly than we ought to think of ourselves, and we do not consider others. 
You alone are the holy and righteous lawgiver and your laws are good and your ways are for our good. Remember your mercy and steadfast love. We plead no righteousness of our own. We plead only the blood of Christ. Oh, Father God, we thank you for you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. You freely give grace to us. You have ordered this body with different gifts and talents, though we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You, O oh God, have provided for our every need. Even when we sinned against you, you forgave us. We bless you, O oh Lord, for you have made your light to shine upon us. You are our God, and we will give thanks to you. We will give thanks to you, O oh Lord, for you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Oh Lord, we pray for Christ Community Bible Church and for all believers. By your grace, teach us and help us to think rightly of ourselves and of others. Give us sober judgment so we embrace the redemptive relationships in this body. Oh God, let our love be genuine. May we always hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Let us love one another with brotherly affection. May we always show honor to one another. And do not let us be slothful in zeal to serve. But may we rejoice in hope, always be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. Grant us that we would contribute to the needs of the saints and demonstrate true hospitality. We ask all of this by your grace. And, O King of kings, we pray for our nation and for our leaders. We pray for righteousness and wisdom and godly fear. Lord, we need your mercy. We do not come to you as a nation following your ways and asking for blessing. We come as a nation abounding in wickedness and begging for mercy. We confess our national sins before you. They are many and they are pervasive, and they are an abomination to you. As a nation, we have turned our backs on you. Forgive us, O God. And so now we ask for the impossible, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would move mightily across this land and turn the hearts of the people back to you. Let your mercy rest on this land and all in authority that there may be justice, righteousness, and peace in our nation. O oh Christ, our master, give us eyes to see fields white for harvest. You, O oh Christ, are the Lord of the harvest. Grace was freely given to us. May we freely offer it to others. May we so greatly prize you in our thoughts, in our hearts, that it overflows in all our speech and deeds. Let our lives portray the magnificent truth that you are Christ, the Messiah, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And as you promised the 11 on the evening before your death, may we demonstrate love for one another so that all men will know that we are your disciples. Oh, may that be true of us. And finally, Lord, let every word spoken from our lips be of you. Let us proclaim the risen Christ the hope of nations and the redeemer of our souls to a lost and hurting world. May we always speak the truth in love 
and never be ashamed of the gospel. Now, Father, we now lift up those who are close to us in our own midst. There are those among us grieving and hurting and suffering from physical ailments. Show your grace is sufficient. Use us to minister to them in Christ's name. Due to the necessary precautions caused by the virus, many are separated from our congregation. So we lift up those who may be lonely, disheartened, and discouraged. May they experience the very real presence of your Holy Spirit and be encouraged by your word. Keep them safe and protected. Guard their hearts against thoughts that would separate them from you. Oh Lord, we need your mercy and your grace. Now, O Lord God Almighty, who formed the earth and stretched out the heavens, we worship you this morning. You sent your only son to die on the cross for our sins. He came that the corruptible might be made incorruptible to exchange our shame for his glory. And by your grace, we ask that we worship you this morning in spirit and truth through our singing, giving, and time in your word. We ask that you equip your servant Jared to proclaim your word with power, clarity, and love. We pray for the unity of the saints. We pray that you will bestow upon us kindness towards others, forgiveness towards our enemies, peace towards our neighbors, compassion towards those in need, and brotherly love and unity towards our fellow Christians. And we pray the glory of your kingdom will be advanced through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray all of this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. And Carlos, it does say a red light on my pack, so if you want to have a couple batteries ready just in case. Well, again, I want to welcome you. And I also want to say that, uh, to begin, that one of the hardest, if not impossible things to do in life is to diagnose how it is that our culture affects us. Because that does happen. And it's extremely hard to diagnose how that happens because fish in water, that's what we've always known. We have nothing to compare it to, so it becomes really difficult to evaluate and assess how it is that our culture affects us. Because again, again, positively or negatively, our disciple shapes, influences. Did I say our disciple? Our culture shapes, influences. You know where this is going. (laughs) And in a sense, disciples us as a culture. Because think about it. Think about who we are as Americans, the kind of values that we have, the rights that we assume, the lenses through which we view reality. You see, as Americans, we value a kind of rugged individualism, don't we? Kind of pioneering spirit that loves our freedom and independence. We love feelings of self-accomplishment, Self-sufficiency, self-help, self-dependence. Self, uh, uh, we, we really love stories of those people who had nothing and beat the odds and without help from anyone rose up and, and climbed their way to the top. 
As Americans, we're sort of like the Vikings of old, independent warriors of personal choice who make our own way in the world. We're the masters of our own fate, thank you very much, the captain of our own souls, create our own destinies. I mean, as Americans, we love our privacy and autonomy and personal choice and self-expression and the power to control everything around us. That's what it means to be America, uh, to be American. And my point is, those kinds of things might be fine for some things in life. But those things don't play too well when we try to bring them into the church. In fact, those kinds of things are the exact opposite of the church. Independence, privacy, autonomy, self-sufficiency, and keeping your nose out of my business are not biblical values that benefit the church. They are cultural curses that weaken the church. Because part of what it means to be a Christian, get this now, is loving, affectionate attachment to a local church where you covenant together for richer or poorer in sickness and in health to advance together the mission of the king. That is the church. And speaking of that mission where we covenant together to advance the mission of the king, there's a name for that. And the name for that is called membership. It's what it means to be a member of the local church. And I have no idea what, if that's what most people mean by it, but that's what the Bible means by membership, and that's what I mean by membership, and that's what we're talking about this morning as a church. Because again, you know that we're taking these opening three weeks of the fall to revisit our our mission and purpose and and vision as a church. We are Christ Community 2.0. We have a new purpose statement. We have seven non-negotiable commitments as a church. We even have a 20-year plan of where we're going in the future. We are locked and loaded, and we are ready to launch as a church. We have already launched as a church. The CCBC rocket, as it were, is already in flight and is exploring new frontiers for the Great Commission. And yet, I just want you to know that none of that is going to go the way we hoped if we don't get under our belts what it means to be members of the local church. Because I know, I've heard all the objections. Why are we talking about this? Is membership even in the Bible? Why do I have to sign a piece of paper to prove that I'm committed? Why do I have to become a member of the local church? And the answer is, you don't. You don't have to become a member of the local church because in Christ you're already a member. It's just that the assumption from the New Testament is how your membership expresses itself is through affectionate attachment to a particular local church in a particular area and, if possible, for life. The reason why we're talking about this this morning is because I want you to see that membership is not what you think. It's better than you think. I want you to see that membership, which we call ownership here at Christ Community, that it is a radical call to ordinary Christianity. 
It's a radical call to be and do everything the New Testament calls you to be and do in a community of souls called the local church. In other words, membership is treasuring Christ together in the context of the local church, embarking together on the most high-stakes mission in the universe. And maybe you're thinking, okay, you know what? I don't have to take a class, and I don't have to sign a document to prove that I'm committed. And that's true. You don't. But I'm not merely after a class or a contract. I'm after a commitment. I'm after a covenant, a marriage, if you will. What I'm after is a passion to join us in prizing and portraying and proclaiming the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of of all peoples. And so here we go. Here's a theology, a biblical theology of membership. What it means, why it matters, why it's biblical, and why when it's done right changes everything about a local church. So here's where we're going this morning. If you have notes, even if you don't, this is where I'm going. This morning, I want you to see three components of church ownership. AKA membership, three components of church ownership that will empower you to maximize your lives for the mission and glory of Christ. Three components of church ownership, AKA membership, that will empower you to maximize your lives for the mission and glory of Christ. The first component is this number one, the metaphors for the church. The metaphors for the church. Now, I begin here because I am thoroughly convinced that the metaphors that the New Testament uses for the church demands membership of the church. The metaphors that the New Testament uses for the church demand membership of the church. What I mean is, once you understand the nature and essence of what the church is, membership to a particular local church becomes a total no-brainer. In fact, where the idea of membership even comes from from the biblical text. Because you remember 1 Corinthians 12, don't you? And, and the analogy, the metaphor that Paul uses for the church, what does he say? He says the church is a body. The church is a body. Meaning what? Meaning just like a human body, there are members. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Christ is the head. He has a body. The church is that body. We are corporately members of that body. You remember what Romans 12 verses 4 and 5 just said. Rich just read it. This might even be in your notes. It says, for even as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members, members of one another. So do you see what we're, we're dealing with here? The entire concept of membership comes from the biblical analogy that the church is a body composed of many members. And the whole point of the analogy is that we, as individual members, we are inseparable and connected to one another. We don't just get to do what we want and detach ourselves whenever we please. No, the church is not a bag of fingers. But the church is a body with eyes and hands and knees and feet that cannot function independently of one another. I mean, you read the Bible and it is undeniable 
The entire Christian life was designed at the outset to have mutual, holy codependence upon one another as we seek one another's spiritual growth. Your spiritual growth is my top priority. My spiritual growth is your top priority. That is membership. Well, the question is, is that how you view the Christian life? Do you view the Christian life as a body, or do you see, uh, do you see it as a body uh, with members mutually attached and connected together by a common life? Or do you see church, Christianity, as a bag of detachable limbs and prosthetic parts? What I mean is, have you been infected by the mentality of gas station Christianity? You pick the one you want, when you want, when it works for you? Or do you see the church as a beautiful synergy of souls inseparably connected together by a common life joined by faith in Jesus Christ, each one mutually dependent upon the other. Don't you see the church only works the way it should when we view our The church only way it works the way it should. When we view even our most private moments, not as private moments, but as part of the nervous system of the church. Don't you see? What we read and what we see and what we look at and what we expose ourselves to in even the most private moments of our lives are inevitably absorbed into the bloodstream of the church. That is membership. Or should I say that is ownership. That's not the only metaphor for the church. There's lots of them, lots and lots of metaphors that the New Testament describes, and each one of them not just implies, but even demands ownership, ownership of a local church. So for instance, look at your notes. I think I have some texts there. We see Galatians 6.10, Ephesians 2.19, 1 Timothy 3.15, 1 Peter 4.17. What is the church? The church is oikei tutheu, the household of God. Meaning what? Meaning the church is not a country club or a business or a society. The church is a family. It's a family. And we are connected, whether you like it or not not by our own blood, but by the blood of the Lamb who bought us. And we are joined together, not by the same last name, but by the name of the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, namely Jesus Christ himself. Don't you see, if we are members of a family adopted by the Father through the Son, and we are that, then what that demands is a kind of love and affection committed to helping one another thrive in Christ through his word which is what we're going to call here at Christ Community, redemptive relationships. 
redemptive relationships. You see, the, the entire family metaphor demands a determined kind of commitment and love and sacrifice and affection at, that perseveres even when things are not necessarily according to your preference. Even when you get burned, which you will. Even when you get snubbed, which you will. Even when you feel overlooked and hurt, and you will feel all of those things. I mean, unintentionally, I am going to hurt you. And we are going to hurt and disappoint one another. But you see, the knee-jerk response is not just to pack up and leave or just not show up. No, but to do what families are supposed to do. Pray for one another. Speak the truth to one another. Encourage one another. Comfort one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Rebuke one another. Love one another. Instruct one another. Serve one another. Confess your sins to one another. Be devoted to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Don't you see? This is glorious. The entire family metaphor automatically places upon each of our shoulders the joyful but grueling responsibility to help one another grow in Christ. And just like any family, this one is highly imperfect. And just like any family, there isn't the option to just leave or just not show up. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that the family metaphor means that you should never dare go to another church? Of course not. We're, we're not a cult. We don't own you. We don't control you. I mean, that's what's so great about the family metaphor is that under the right circumstances, you can always leave and be joined to another church because that church is equally your family also. I'm just saying, A, we pack up and leave way too early and hit the eject button and B, Listen carefully. The family metaphor of the church expresses itself the best when we are affectionately attached to a specific body of believers in particular and, if possible, till death do us part. That brings great glory to Christ, and that is ownership. But you see, the church is not only a body, it's not only a flock, it's also, it is also... It is a flock. It's not only a body. It's not only a family. It is also a flock. And you remember John ten sixteen, the, the whole global of body of souls for whom Christ died in all the world, Christ calls them a flock. But then 1 Peter 5, get this. That, okay, the global church is a flock. That's true. But then 1 Peter 5, speaking to particular elders... At particular churches, he tells them to shepherd the particular flock of God among them and to be examples to their particular flocks. And what this tells us is that although there is a global component to the flock of God, we are all one global flock bought with the blood of the shepherd to be sure. At the exact same time, that global universal flock is made up of constituent smaller flocks scattered all over the planet. And the implication is those particular flocks are to be loved and cared for by particular elders for whom they are responsible in particular. So what? What does that prove? It proves 
that whatever it means to be a part of the global flock of God, get this, works itself out in particular local churches as believers live their lives in the context of the local church. In other words, the church is the up-close, tangible representation and display of the global church. Think about it like this. I used this analogy last time. I remember as a kid being granted the distinct privilege of, of eating sugary cereals. A great blessing to my life. Fruity Pebbles, Lucky Charms, Cocoa Puffs. And I remember distinctly sitting there at the kitchen table looking at a bowl, uh, looking at a, a box of Fruit Loops and, and giant Fruit Loops on the front of the box as I ate my cereal, and, and, and I remember noticing that just in case anyone got the mistaken idea that there were Fruit Loops the side of, size of your head, inside the box, there was this little disclaimer at the bottom of the picture. Do you remember what it said? It said, enlarged to show texture. See, that is the local church. The global church is all the Fruit Loops inside the world, and the local gathering of believers is the enlarged picture that tangibly displays what the global church looks like. We are Fruit Loops. And the point is, the point is, all that it means to be members of the universal body, all that that means to be part of the universal flock of God, all that that means to be a part of this grand, global, universal church expresses itself, displays itself, works itself out. In particular, local churches to which we have an affectionate connection and, if possible, for life. So what that is, is ownership. And in point three, I'm going to explain why we call it ownership, but that brings me to the second component of church ownership, number two, the biblical case for ownership. The biblical case for ownership. Because ownership is not in the Bible. So they say. So they say. And, and you've heard that, right? And I've heard that. I've heard all the objections. In one sense, I, I really do get the objections, and yet when people insist to me that membership is not in the Bible, I just think, okay, well, at least not the kind of membership the Bible talks about, and, and not the kind of membership I'm talking about, because when people insist that membership is not in the Bible, I just, I just wonder, are they even asking the right questions? Are they even looking for the right things? I'm wondering, are they taking a 21st century consumer mentality of membership and importing it into the deep, robust, rich concept of membership found in the pages of Scripture? When people object to membership, I wonder if they are objecting to a concept of membership that the New Testament doesn't even espouse anyway. Because if they could just see Matthew 18, and 1 Corinthians 5, and 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, then they would see 
they would see that membership is not a Costco-like membership where you pay your dues and get a club status and, and get your name on a plaque somewhere, but that rather membership is a covenant. It's an oath. It's an understanding that our membership in the universal church expresses itself in an affectionate and, if possible, permanent attachment to a local church where we make one another's spiritual growth our top priority. That, that is in the Bible. Where, you may ask? That's a great question. It's in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, where it says that individual local churches build one another up by speaking the truth in love. That's, that's not an evangelism verse. That's a church verse. That, church, that, that verse is churchy. Paul is envisioning that the never close, open seven days a week activity of the church is the, is the ongoing, faithful, unceasing investment of the word of God into one another's lives. That's what we're going to call redemptive relationships here. And if you want an example of what that's going to look like, next week I'm going to preach all on redemptive relationships. But this is the essence of church health. Now, it's true. You could do this on Zoom for believers in China. That's, that's true. But that's not what Paul's envisioning. Rather, what he's after here is this would happen every day in individual local churches in particular areas. This is what Christianity looks like. In fact, the Bible only makes sense when we understand that everything the Bible calls us to be and do, we be it and do it in the context of a local church. For instance, consider Hebrews 13, 17. You, have to, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 13, 17, listen to what it says. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they themselves keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And yet let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now that verse literally makes zero sense if affectionate, Attachment to a particular local church was not the very thing in his mind. That is exactly what was in his mind. Think about it. Think about it. Your leaders submit to them. They keep watch over your souls. But you see, you are part of the universal church. That is true. But you are not called to submit to and follow the pastors in China. You're not called to submit and follow the pastors in New Zealand. You are called to follow the loving leadership of elders in a particular area who have the responsibility of shepherding your soul in particular. Don't you see? The internal logic of the New Testament is how your membership to the universal church expresses itself is through the affectionate attachment to a particular local church in a particular area under the leadership of particular elders who are responsible to shepherd you in particular. That's membership. Or better, that's ownership. Now consider Matthew 18. In fact, I want you to turn there. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. I preached this last year, and I'm going to preach this every single year. Because we need to know what Matthew 18 says. And we need to know it, we need to love it. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Because you remember what Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is. It is commonly referred to as 
the church discipline passage. But what it really is, is the church restoration passage. In other words, in Matthew 18, get this, Christ lays out a process for a church to restore someone who is drifting into the shark-infested ocean of sin. And I'll just tell you, this process right here laid out in Matthew 18 is literally the immune system that keeps a church from imploding from the inside out. Churches that do not exist anymore, but crumbled out of existence, did so precisely because they did not do this process well or at all. Here's the text. And if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and he alone. And if he should listen to you, you have won your brother. Success. But if he does not listen to you, go and take with you two or three others in order that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter should be confirmed. But if he should refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he should refuse to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So do you see what this is? Christ The Lord of the church gave the church a four-step process designed to keep people from wandering into the minefield of sin and destruction. There's four steps. Step one, if someone sins against you, and, and 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 this is not theoretical, I want you to do this. I'm sure in many ways you do practice this. This is the protocol. Step one. If someone sins against you or you notice something in someone's life, what what does the text say to do? What does Christ say to do? You don't go and tell a bunch of people. You don't get mad and leave. You go to that person privately. And and you don't talk to anyone about that. You talk to them privately and express your love and concern. You try to give them a, a path to biblical change. And this step right here, this probably does and should happen every single week in your homes. I mean, the first step of of loving and gentle restoration is and should be normal Christianity. And most times, most times, people repent and confess, and and over time, they begin to change. And that's exactly what Christ anticipates. Look at verse 15. And he says, and if he should listen to you, you have gained, you have won your brother. My wife, over the last 15 years has won me again and again and again. Sometimes not nearly as fast or as clean or as painless as she would have liked, but nevertheless, nevertheless, her faithful intervention was always designed to help me weed-whack the sin in my life. And I have weed-whacked my yard, and occasionally the little things, the little strings, you, you hit your shin with them and it hurts kind of bad. And sometimes being talked to about issues in your life feels like weed whacking your own shins. And I have not always responded well to that, but this is the process. This is the step one process. And yet in the unfortunate event that that person makes it clear that they don't want to change, there is a second step of the process. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, 
Go and take two or three others, in order that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter should be confirmed. In other words, over time, and sometimes it takes time to know. None of these steps are fast necessarily. They're not. Sometimes they just take time. But if it's clear that that person refuses to repent and, and change, what you need to do is you need to up the ante a little bit and you need to call in reinforcements. In a non gossipy way. You take two or three people to come alongside that person and the whole aim is to help them see the gravity of their sin and the glory of God's grace. Because the only goal here is repentance and restoration. It's not an intervention. It is reconciliation. And I've told this before. This reminds me of a story I heard of a black church in the deep south back in the 60s or a man in the congregation had been physically abusing his wife, and cops of the area simply said, we're not going to do anything about this. You handle it on your own. We won't intervene. Okay? And so when it got to the step two process, these men in the church told this man who had been beating his wife that this, if this happened again, they would show up with two or three witnesses, and they would literally beat some sense into him with their fists. And apparently he didn't take them very seriously because he hit his wife again. And yet true to their word, they showed up to his house with two or three witnesses and they took him out back and they gave him a beating that he would never, ever forget. And apparently rumor has it, it worked. Now I'm not advocating that (laughs) necessarily. But what that does is that illustrates the point, right? That refused repentance necessitates greater gravity and additional reinforcements from those within the body. But step three, there is a step three. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church who they are and what they did. Why? Because desperate times call for desperate measures. That's because that's how serious sin is. Because Christ's, not mine, Christ's, not mine, Christ's process for a church, for a process of helping someone come to their senses is to recruit an entire church to go after them. Literally calling Texting, coming by the house, coming by their work if need be. All hands on deck calling them to repent of the suicidal pleasures of sin that would otherwise destroy them. Because that's what churches do. That's what families do. They're willing to do whatever it takes. And yet, should they refuse, should they refuse the, a church's loving attempts to bring them back to Christ? Because again, that's always, that's always what's happening. That's always the goal To bring them back, the stakes get raised to DEFCON level 4, verse 17. But if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Meaning what? Meaning, with broken hearts and tears in our eyes, we now regard them as an unbeliever and an object of outreach. And we unanimously remove them from the fellowship. 
the goal was never to remove them. It was always to restore them. The goal was never retribution. It was always reconciliation. And at this stage, we still don't give up, do we? We still don't give up hope, but we weep and we lament and we pray and we plead with them to repent. Now at this stage, I need to do something here. I need to give you three things. I need to give you one clarification, one refutation, and one explanation. First, a clarification. Anytime you hear teaching on so-called church discipline, half the people in the room start getting really nervous, right? Because they just assume. I remember, I remember sitting back in Spokane and, and showing up to church, and I'd never seen this before. Or even, even after I had seen it, I'm like, well, I remember thinking, it's like, well, I sin a lot. Next Sunday, are they going to read my name and my sins of the congregation? I mean, is that what's going to happen here? And the answer is no. The answer is no. This is a process you would know. Trust me, you would know if you were going to be talked about. And the process is long, and it is slow, and it is careful, and it is patient. But if that's how you feel, I just want to say, friend, this process is not for strugglers. This process is not for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of God belongs to those who mourn and sorrow and go to war over their sin. Strugglers and fighters and mourners are welcome at this church. Spiritual cripples and beggars of grace are welcome at this church. This process is not for you. That's not who this is talking about. No one is waiting around this church with a fly swatter of discipline ready to smash you the next time you look at porn. You should never do that. And any sin can get you to this point. But our aim, our aim as a church is not just to tell you that you should be godly, but to do whatever we can to help you be godly. This process is not for strugglers, but for those in defiant, ongoing, willful patterns of known sin over time, habitually, for which they refuse to change. And all the processes, all the steps, one, two, three, they will happen before it gets to the final step. Second, a refutation. There is a clarification. Here's a refutation. The knee-jerk reaction that sometimes people have when you teach on church restoration, what some people call church discipline, is they'll say, you know what, you do this, people are going to leave your church. You do this, people are going to leave. And I admit, this sounds scary. It sounds scary, especially if they're newcomers. But I have a few responses to that. First, we can't let the fear of people leaving drive what we do and don't do as a church can't. We exist not to please the masses, but to obey what the text says. And if this process is in the text, and it is, and if this process is from Christ, and it is, then our job is not to quibble with whether or not we should do this but to run his church in his way, knowing that if we do his church in his way, he will bring to his church exactly whom he desires. The second response is this. Sure, I have seen that too. I have actually seen people show up and in the middle of a service, when this thing, this church restoration thing is happening, get up and walk out of the room. I've seen it. 
I'm sure you've seen it too. It does happen, unfortunately. But if we're just speaking anecdotally here, if we're just speaking about stories that we've heard, which don't prove anything, but if we're just talking about stories, I have seen three different times, three separate families on three different occasions who visited our church back in Spokane, and on their first Sunday, they were doing church discipline. And those families, they were saddened, of course. But you know what they did? They rejoiced. They rejoiced. And they were blown away that that church was not interested in hiding or covering up sin, even the sin of one of the elders. But that this church loved Christ, and they loved the church enough to pursue people hurtling off the cliff, headed to destruction. And those people stayed at the church. And they became key families in the church. They became members of the church. And get this, one of the families were unbelievers and they got saved precisely because of that Sunday. Explain that to me. The explanation is, Christ will build his church in his way, in his own timing, by the means which he has designed. And finally, an explanation. What does any of this, what does any of this have to do with church membership ownership? It has everything to do with church ownership. Everything. I mean, I don't even know how you do this process unless, A, that church is a clearly defined unit of people who know and love each other deeply, and B, those people in that church are bought in to the degree that they are willing to take, so, take such painful precautions to keep someone they love from leaping off the ledge of sin. That's membership. That's ownership. The only question is, is that the kind of Christianity you signed up for? Because I'll just have you know, that's the only kind of Christianity there is. And, and I know you know this, and many of you know this by experience, but you know that authentic Christianity, it is painful Christianity, isn't it? Why? Because we are willing to walk with one another down the deepest, darkest paths of our lives. That's what we're committed to do. At least we should be. But I should also insert the disclaimer that, that authentic Christianity is joyful Christianity. It is the only joyful Christianity. And so when I talk about membership, when I talk about ownership, all I'm talking about is what the Bible calls you to anyway, which is wounded sinners coming alongside wounded sinners with the word of God, helping repair them with the word of God so that they can go back out there and fight in the trenches of the great commission. Ownership is people in need of change, coming alongside people in need of change, helping them in their pursuit of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. So that brings me finally to the third component. The third component of church ownership, number three, the definition of ownership. The definition of ownership. So all I want to do here finally in these last moments here is do two simple things with you to get us all on the same page. Number one, I want to explain why it is we call membership ownership. And number two, I want to define exactly what we mean by ownership. And the reason why we call membership ownership is not to be cute or clever or innovative, but to be clear. The goal is clarity. It's like the word Trinity in the Bible. The word Trinity does not appear in the pages of Scripture. 
And yet the word Trinity perfectly captures the idea about God that we see in the Bible, namely that he is a Trinity. And in the same way, we're calling membership ownership because it not only avoids the baggage of misunderstanding that most people have about membership, but it also captures exactly what the New Testament means by membership. For instance, 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26. I think they're in your notes. And, and notice what Paul says, what it looks like to be a member. He says, but God has so composed the body. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26. But God has so composed the body, notice, so that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Do you see? Simple but profound. We share. Being a member owns that you own the burdens and cares and victories and triumphs and defeats everybody else. They own yours. You own theirs. Everybody co-owners of one another's spiritual health. That's what we're talking about. I mean, the question is, is that why you're here? Is that why you're here? And there's lots of good reasons to attend a church. There's not just one reason. But do you feel the weight of the reality that to be a Christian means that you inherit the holy responsibility of helping one another persevere in their pursuit of Jesus? I mean, this, this is what Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 talks about, which is, aside from Matthew 18, the weightiest text in the entire New Testament about the church. If this isn't membership, I don't know what is. Listen to what it says. It says, take care, brothers, Lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But exhort one another. Encourage one another day after day. As long as it is still called today. Why? Lest you should be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is he saying? On our own, by ourselves, what will we do? We will drift. And our hearts will become hardened. And we need one another. The means that God has put in place to keep us from being hardened and falling away from the living God. The means to keeping us in our pursuit of Christ firm until the end is what? The word filled care and affection of one another. I need you and you need me. Co-owners of one another's spiritual health. That's ownership. So you need to pray. We all need to pray every single day that we would have such love and affection for one another that one another's spiritual health would be our top priority. I've said this so many times. We, we should be able to walk in here on a Sunday morning and meet eyes from across the room and know, just know that, that your spiritual growth is my top priority and my spiritual growth is your top priority. That we just live with the understanding that you and I 
possess the most dangerous and destructive instrument on the planet called the human heart. And it is so deadly and deceptive that left to ourselves, we will drift into the shark-infested ocean of sin and destruction. I mean, people can criticize membership all they want. It's fine. But they cannot criticize the I bleed for you, you bleed for me kind of mentality that every person in the church is to have for one another. So here we go. Here's the definition. Here's my definition of ownership. It's all one sentence because that's how I do definitions. Long sentences, all one sentence. Here's what it means to be an owner. Here's what it means to belong to a local church. I think this is in your notes. Ownership is to be graciously included by God through Christ into a global body of redeemed souls. That's exciting, isn't it? Yet those people, they manifest their allegiance to their Redeemer in an affectionate attachment to a particular expression of that body called the local church in which they use their gifts to help one another prize and pursue Christ as the highest treasure of their souls. That's ownership. All one sentence, which was ridiculous. But think about it. Think about it. God, at the cost of his son's life, graciously included you into a body of redeemed souls from every nation. That's unbelievable. But you see, our allegiance to Christ, our allegiance to Christ expresses itself not in private, isolated, lone ranger, I just do my own thing while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. No, we, we display our allegiance to our Redeemer in an affectionate attachment to a particular expression of the body called a local church. Because radical, cutting-edge allegiance to Christ is only conceived of in the pages of Scripture as happening in the context of the local church. Anything else, it's not Christianity. And our aim in the local church is to use our spiritual gifts to help one another prize and pursue Christ as the treasure of our souls. That is membership. That's what it means to belong to a local church. The question is, and I close with this, the question is, what is the next stage of growth in the church that needs to happen in your life? What's the next stage of growth that needs to happen in the church in your life? Do, do you need to become an owner, a co-owner of Christ's community? We're going to have an ownership class in January. You should totally take it if you are not an owner currently. Do you need the accountability and mutual discipleship of a small group? If you look in your bulletin, all the information, I believe I write in the middle column, is all the information you need about small groups. My goal, my hope, is that everyone in the church eventually would be part of a small group. It's called mutual discipleship. It's called redemptive relationships. It's the Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 kind of thing. It's what we need. And starting tonight is Rich Kasky's small group. Talk to him. He's in the front row. He read scripture. If you aren't part of a small group, you need to become part of one. Do you need biblical and theological training? We have equipping classes at 9 a.m. designed to do that very thing. Do you need to be equipped for the work of ministry? That's why they're there, not just to teach you data and facts, 
but to equip you this, to serve the needs of the saints. And speaking of serving the needs of the saints, do you need to do that? Do you need to be a connected part of the body and serving the endless needs of the saints on the right hand column of the bulletin our ministry teams just waiting just waiting for people to take those and own those eric and i we just don't have the bandwidth to organize all this we need we need people who just love ministry and who get what we're doing here to be a part of what we're doing and and be part of these ministry teams and take it and run with it and own it I mean, I hope it makes sense. I'm not, I have zero interest in guilting you this morning, but only in enticing you. To entice you to see that the church, despite its many flaws, it's not a building, but a battalion. A battalion of redeemed souls, of blood-bought souls embarking together in the most loving and dangerous cause in the universe called the Great Commission. Because you see, Christ loves his bride, the church. And I want you to love it also. That's ownership. Let's pray. Oh Christ, we come to you as the Lord of the church as the head of the church, as the ruler of the church. And Lord, we just come to you as highly imperfect and very flawed people, people who struggle. Our default mode is struggle, Lord. And yet that's why you've designed this system, this interwoven system, this synergy of souls called the local church so that we can assist and strengthen and help and comfort and exhort and help one another and strengthen one another and do the one another's to and for one another. Oh Lord, none of us are great at church. None of us are great instinctually on our own. Oh Lord, we have bents. We have proclivities. We have misplaced affections and longings. Sins to which we gravitate. Oh, Lord, and even though we all have within us the possibility of dive-bombing this church, oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us, despite our many flaws and sins and weaknesses, to be ministers of transforming grace to one another. That you would raise and lift our understanding our theology of the church that we would love it we would love it not as a place that we attend merely on sunday mornings but as a body of redeemed souls in which we own the spiritual health and growth of one another i need help lord i need help with that in many ways i'm not there yet so we ask you christ knowing that the church is high stakes. This is the means that you use to advance your plan and display your glory. Just help us to be faithful. Help us to stick to the text, to be patient, to love well. And we just long that you would work in our church in a way that the only explanation would be a sovereign God doing the supernatural. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. A few announcements here. Announcements are part of our liturgy too. This isn't just facts or information, but this is a part of who we are as a church, or part of our church life. Announcement number one, 
uh, talking, speaking of owners, uh, next Sunday, it was supposed to be this Sunday, we had to shift a few things around. Uh, next Sunday is New Owners Sunday. So people who are newly inducted owners, or at least actually what it's going to be is you are going to help induct them. These uh, people have been interviewed by the elders. They have been, um, uh, people have spent time with them. They've, they've affirmed the doctrinal statement. They've, they've done all the things to, to indicate that they really want to be here at this church. And what we're going to do next Sunday is they're going to stand up front here and you are going to help induct them into the body of this church. In fact, you should have in your possession, do they, Erica? You should have in your possession, contained in the bulletin, the affirmations, the, the commitments that the new owners are going to make. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you stand up as existing, previously existing members, owners, and I'm going to have you uh, give affirmation. I'm going to have you induct them into the body. I, I don't know if induct is the best word. It's not like the Hall of Fame or anything. But, but really, we're, we're just going to have a, a transaction, a formal transaction tomorrow or uh, next week where new owners declare, we want to be a part of this body, and all you're going to say is, we accept, welcome to the team. Welcome to the family. That's what we're going to do next week. So be ready for that. That'll be an exciting time. Again, as I mentioned, in the last year and a half, about 50-plus people have come to our church. Uh, I believe 16, 14, 15 of them, whatever it is, have become new owners. These are exciting days of Christ community. Uh, next, uh, is, is it next Sunday already? Yeah, the, the 27th. Um, we'd like to do theology seminars here Sunday evenings, the fourth Sunday of every evening. We're going to do... Uh, theology seminars. We're going to do an extended series of seminars on cults and false religions. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to talk about Catholicism. I'm not saying that Catholicism is a cult or false religion, but there are some things about Catholicism that we need to have a really serious conversation about. And so we're going to talk about that next week, and that'll be at 5 o'clock here. There is actually going to be food. You can come and eat, and we'll, uh, I'll teach on what Catholicism actually teaches, and, and it is shocking. And then we can uh, just enjoy that time together, and we can have a Q&A and those kinds of things. Um, also cover Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, and then also be talking about postmodernism and kind of how we got to where we got. So anyway, that'll be next week starting that. Really excited. Uh, last but not least, uh, again, we want you to be well-equipped. We want to help you not only think biblically but live biblically. That's why we offer books of the month. Uh, out there, there's, there's two books of the month being offered. One is Side by Side. So all this church stuff about ownership and redemptive relationships and caring for one another's spiritual well-being, that's what that book's about. So if you want to learn how to do that well, and you should, then I recommend that you get that book. It's a small little thing. It's a great book. I recommend you get that in your hands and read that. Also, uh, later on, what month is it now? Is it September? It is September. It's been September for a long time. Sorry, I'm out to lunch here. Uh, soon, uh, I'm going to start preaching on the letter of 1 John. And so we have a commentary on 1 John, because again, I want you to study the book with me. So if you want to go more in-depth on 1 John, there's a good commentary, really, really great tool. I encourage you to get that as well. Okay, well, why don't we close? Uh, let's stand for a benediction, and then we'll be dismissed. And we conclude with the theme of a shepherd, just like we opened. The benediction comes from Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, and it says this. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week.